0: drama at ESPN swirling around Pat McAfee is ongoing and maybe getting thicker. Plus, we'll hear about the NBA's efforts in Europe and the latest embarrassment for the Oakland A's. It's Wednesday, January 10th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Aaron Rodgers, Pat McAfee, Jimmy Kimmel, and some figures within ESPN is ongoing. Joining me now to help us make sense of all of this is front office sports senior writer Mike McCarthy. Welcome, Mike.
1: Glad to be here, Owen.
0: So we have the public feud between Aaron Rodgers, who is using McAfee's show as his podium, and Jimmy Kimmel, who has his own late night show. And then we have a separate but perhaps overlapping kerfuffle between McAfee and some people within ESPN, namely someone named Norby Williamson. Let's start with Rogers and Kimmel. So Rogers was back on McAfee's show on Tuesday, following a public dare tear down from Kimmel on Monday. Uh, what did he say, and did it bring us any closer to some kind of resolution here?
1: Well, yes, you're right. Aaron Rodgers did appear, and after being challenged by Jimmy Kimmel to apologize for suggesting he was on Jeffrey Epstein's list, Aaron Rodgers did not. He did not offer an apology. Uh, He said he did not uh, mean to say that he was a pedophile. Uh, He said he was happy uh, that Kimmel's name was not on the list, but that's where it stands. So really, my next question, Owen, is Is Jimmy Kimmel going to go through with his threat of a lawsuit, in which case you would have Pat McAfee dragged into it, so you'd have two of Disney's biggest stars and highest paid stars in effect in in a legal battle against each other. The whole thing is mind-boggling. And what's really interesting to go into is how it's spread out into the mainstream media. The Today Show is covering it. CNN is covering it. It's like, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's moved well beyond the sports drama. I mean, especially because Jimmy Kimmel's involved. Um, Also, I think we should say that Rogers, I, I think, seems to be trying to have it both ways here. He said he was going to, you know, pop open a, a bottle to celebrate when the Epstein list came out. You know, he implied strongly, I think, that you know, Kimmel would was probably going to be on the list, and that would be exciting for him. And then to say like, oh, I didn't imply that. I didn't. I'm happy he's not on the list. Um, I, I, it strains. Uh, credibility if if
1: he was playing word games I mean it's you know like Bill Clinton with the definition of the word is here you know did he imply it did he say it did he not say it I mean the easiest thing would have been to say look I was just trying to you know break Jimmy Kimmel's balls I was making a joke crude joke I'm sorry if he got offended and it would have been end the story but you know you're you're dealing with people who have huge egos and they can't admit they're wrong ever Um, you know, and they're always the smartest person in the room. At least they think they are. So, you know, that's why this thing has legs because, you know, people just couldn't act like adults and say, Hey, sorry, it was a joke. Let's move on.
0: And so that that's one feud. Then there's another one that centers around McAfee himself instead of it's kind of rotating around him. So he has identified an enemy at ESPN yes. named Norby Williamson. So who is this guy and why is, why does Pat McAfee not like him?
1: Norby Williamson is one of the most respected and powerful uh, executives at ESPN. He literally almost goes back to the founding of the company. But he's also a guy who expects performance and he's not afraid to cut people loose. So he's made a lot of enemies Uh, He's been compared to me to Littlefinger on Game of Thrones, that kind of behind-the-scenes power broker. Uh, So McAfee, you know, uh, unbeknownst to anybody with absolutely no proof that I know of, decided that Norby Williams planted a negative story about him to the New York Post. And he goes off on Norby Williams, calls him a rat, literally on ESPN air. He called an ESPN executive a rat on their own air and accused him of sabotaging his own show. And what was more surprising about that, uh, Owen, than anything else, is that nothing happened. I mean, ESPN has disciplined everybody over the years, from Jamel Hill to Bill Simmons to Dan Labatar. But, you know, uh, Teflon Pat got away with it, at least for now. So it's really a crazy situation. It just shows you how much things have changed at ESPN.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, with the the rogers Kimmel feud, I can see that eventually just kind of burning out as people get bored. And, you know, Rogers is not a Disney employee, even though he's using an ESPN show for his platform. But the McAfee-Norby Williamson one seems like, this seems like a real power struggle between a very public ESPN voice and a very powerful person who, you know, very few people have heard of. Um, Is that, is this going to, fizzle out at some point,
1: or or does is someone going to have to go here? What's what's going on? No, I, I don't think it's going to fizzle out. If anything, it just keeps expanding. I mean, another day, another ESPN executive put on blast. I mean, during his appearance today, Rogers went after Mike Foss, who's another ESPN executive, <laughs> and pointedly told him, I don't work for you, Mike, uh, which I thought was uh, one of the crazier moments of the whole interview. So it, it, it's actually a growing uh I do think this could come down to a situation where Jimmy Pataro and Burke Magnus are going to have to make a choice where, you know, they protect their new fair-haired hire or they stick up for their management. I mean, in my experience, I've never seen anything like it. To me, management always protects management at the expense of talent. But McAfee is making up his own rules, Owen, and and I think one of the key distinctions here is that he doesn't really work for ESPN except for him his capacity as a college game day analyst. He is his own boss, he owns the company, and he licenses the show to ESPN. So that gives ESPN a little daylight to say, well, he's not really an employee.
0: Interesting. And so he could theoretically pick up his show and take it somewhere else if you know this isn't working out. But if he's, he's still a huge draw, though, right?
1: And some people have speculated that's exactly what he's trying to do, that five months after joining ESPN, he's not happy. He's trying to get fired. He gets a huge payout, parachute. And then a week later, he has a deal with, you know, YouTube or Google or, you know, FanDuel or Dual Fan or somebody else. Uh, I mean, he can basically go where, wherever he wants. Uh, McAfee is denying that. He says he's very ha- happy. And I'll tell you something about McAfee that – I don't think uh, Norby maybe realized, but he does now, is Maggie if he knows how to make friends in high places. He's like this with Burt Magnus. He's like this with Jimmy Pitaro. He's even got a relationship with Bob Iger. So, you know what I mean? If somebody clamps down on his show who's, you know, below that level, he could just pick up the phone and drop a dime on him.
0: Yeah. Um, and lastly, I just feel like it's worth noting. I feel like ESPN is they're getting what they signed up for here. They, they knew McAfee was a wild card and that was sort of the appeal of him. He's kind of you never know what he's going to say. Um, and now they, they're learning what it means that you never know what he's going to say.
1: I wonder if this is all a work, Owen. I wonder if, you know, ESPN is laughing all the way to the Of course, ESPN and the Pat McAfee show and the Jimmy Kimmel show have been on everybody's lips for the last week. I can't wait to see what the ratings are for his show today. It's going to be the most watched Pat McAfee episode of all time. So is this all a wrestling work and we're all just getting conned? I don't know.
0: Mike McCarthy, thanks so much for joining us. You got it. With the calendar turning to 2024, you can expect your W-2s and 1099s and any other tax documents coming your way to start showing up, and odds are you'll be taxed on the money you made in 2023. If only you had had the foresight to take 3% of your income now, with the rest coming in 10 years, by which time you might have relocated to a more favorable tax district. We don't know if that is Shohei Otani's plan for when he receives $680 million over 10 years after his $700 million deal with the LA Dodgers expires but he's got the option. And if he goes ahead with that, he'll cost the state of California an estimated $98 million in tax revenue. California State Controller Malia Cohen is now calling on the federal government to try to get Otani and others to pay taxes in the state where he is earning his money. Specifically, Cohen wants limits on tax deductions and exemptions for the highest earners. Cohen is doing her job when she asked for these changes. But in the near term, Getting tax reform through this divided Congress has about the same odds as I would hitting or pitching against Shohei Otani. Staying in California, the Oakland A's, like many teams, have had a fan fest before the season where you can meet players and have a party and get excited about the coming season. The difference with the A's is that for the last couple of years, the team has stopped putting on its fan fest, but the fans themselves have kept it going. Just another example of A's fans bringing love and energy to the team even when the A's organization is not. This year is no different. There will be former players and a presence from the Oakland Roots in Seoul, which are USL soccer teams, the mayor's office. And this week, the FanFest booked another sponsor, the Stockton Ports. Who are the Stockton Ports? They are the A's single A team. An A's minor league affiliate is doing more for A's fans than the Oakland A's. And speaking of minor league teams, two Oakland City Council members sent a letter to the A's asking why they blocked the Oakland Ballers, a Pioneer League team, from using the Oakland Coliseum for a single game in June on a date when the A's do not plan to make use of the stadium. The A's haven't explained themselves, but the prevailing theory is that they don't want the embarrassment of being outdrawn by the B's, which would very likely happen. Up next, I spoke to George Ivisiglou, who is leading the NBA's growth efforts in Europe and the Middle East. We talked about the strong pipeline of talent from Europe to the NBA, the upcoming game in Paris between the Nets and Cavs, and how Victor Wembonyama has poured gasoline on NBA fandom in France. And that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by George Ivisiglou, NBA Head of Fan Engagement and Direct-to-Consumer for the Europe and Middle East. Welcome, George.
2: Hey, Owen. Good to see you. Thanks for the invite.
0: Of course, great to have you. So the Nets and Cavaliers are playing in Paris. Uh, These overseas games obviously involve a ton of logistics, and then you have to pick somewhere in the world to do it. Um, Why Paris?
2: Well, for many, many reasons. First of all, excited to have both the teams here. They just arrived yesterday. I think both of them were able to go to the Eiffel Tower uh, earlier today. So uh, very excited about that. Paris for a few reasons. Uh, I think to start start from the obvious, it's a fantastic city that offers a very rich choice of uh, culture, uh, amazing food, obviously a lot of great sightseeing, Uh, but above all, a tremendous basketball uh, culture. Uh, We have uh, a a recent history of playing games here since 2020, our official European Global game. So we're very excited to be coming back in front of the Parisian, uh, the French, the European, but also the global audience. I mean, an interesting trivia here is that we have people from 41 uh, different countries uh, traveling in 14 different states. So uh, it's happening in Paris, but it's in front of a global audience. Um, outside of the city itself, obviously France, uh, as, as you know, very well, uh, very rich uh, in basketball history and culture, uh, with a fantastic, uh, national team. I will have very strong relationships with the Federation, with the local league. Uh, So we're very happy to present, uh, our teams in front of, uh, of, of, this audience and in front of this ecosystem.
0: Yeah. And actually, if we could just dive in a, a little deeper on just the, the state of basketball in France, obviously, you know, I think fans in this country know they know Tony Parker, obviously Wembanyama, who we will we'll get to him a little bit more later. But um, when, when it comes to just, you know, the local, the, the domestic leagues and uh, fandom, basketball fandom in France, uh, what's the state of that right now?
2: Well it's one of the of the biggest I would say markets in in our region and in the world in terms of uh fandom we have millions of basketball and NBA fans basketball is the second most popular uh, team sport for men for men and boys and the first most popular team sport for women in France as i've said there is really rich history with players that you've mentioned like Tony Parker of course Boris Dio, many others obviously right now Victor Ogambanyama, who is uh, very, very popular. And we can talk a little bit more about him in a minute. Um, uh, and also we have, uh, a very rich NBA, uh, history in the market as well. NBA games have been airing in French TV since 1984. Uh, so that's 40 years now. Uh, we've been with our, uh, TV partner being since, uh, 2012, uh, they're airing uh, up to 14, uh, games live every week and about 40 games in what we call a European prime time, so at a time zone that you know allows uh, many of our fans to tune in and and, and watch live. Uh, so there is a lot of positive momentum, and there is a lot of rich history, obviously, uh, as it comes down to uh, to basketball. And it's a great time to be a fan in France, and I would say uh, broadly in, in Europe and the Middle East in general.
0: So we have the Brooklyn Nets, the Cleveland Cavaliers playing on Thursday. Uh, why are those two teams the ones who are, are getting sent over?
2: So look, the way the way this works with us, obviously planning starts uh, quite a bit ahead, so more than a year ahead, I would say, and we're on ongoing discussions with all of our teams, all of our 30 teams about their appetite and their intentions to play overseas outside the US. As you can imagine, most, if not all of them, are really up for it for a combination of reasons. Some of them might have... Uh, what we call local heroes or players who come from different markets around the world. Some of them might have very strong partnership relationships with some markets, uh, or uh, some markets are priority markets for them in terms of fan engagement. So we offer them the opportunity to uh, start a conversation around which of those markets would be of interest to them. And then depending on uh, a set of other parameters like arena availability, sponsorship ecosystem, uh, fan ecosystem, we select a few markets that we bring our games to life every year. Right. Uh, so for, 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 for this coming year, obviously Cleveland, both Cleveland and Brooklyn were uh, very keen. Uh, I will say it's been amazing having both of them here and working with them to bring in multiple activations to life. Uh, as an example, we have a set of uh, social responsibility programming, uh, junior MBA programming that we're doing with the teams. Uh, the Cavaliers are activating a Cleveland cafe within our MBA house, which is happening in the center of Paris. The Brooklyn Nets are taking over a French pizzeria and completely revamping it in pure Brooklyn style. Uh, there is a notorious B.I.G. Uh, concert uh, to honor him uh, tomorrow evening. So there is a lot of uh, appetite and intention to bring authentic, uh, from their market, local experiences to Paris uh, and give our Parisian fans here uh, a taste of what it is. Uh, it feels to be part of an NBA celebration.
0: And I know the NFL has, um, you know, for their overseas efforts, they, they're very controlled and say, you know, this team has marketing rights in these countries and it's, you know, very, very specific and measured. How does the NBA work with teams when it comes to promoting itself overseas?
2: Look, I think I think it's twofold with us. Obviously, marketing rights is one thing and we work with and we're partnering with all of our teams to to try and expand their footprint and obviously... The league is there to serve the teams, right? So helping with their commercial efforts uh, overseas as well. And then the games, I I would say, is one specific component of that. And obviously, when we bring a game, we sort of treat it as our European all-star game in a way. So yes, there is the main course, which is the game, which will happen on Thursday night. But as I've said, there is a week long of additional programming that takes place. Also because we want to engage with as many fans and young boys and girls who play the game of basketball. Um, as possible, and and for that, uh, there isn't really a view where some teams have the right to to come and play a game in one market and some others in some other. It comes down to the, as I've said, to the appetite that the teams have to to do things internationally, and then things like uh, local heroes, uh, elements that will will make those games as interesting as possible to uh, to the local fans.
0: Speaking of local heroes, so Victor Wembanyama is, obviously, there have been stars in the NBA from France before. You mentioned, you know, Tony Parker, Boris Diaw. Wembanyama looks like he's going to be, you know, a a cut above, like could develop into the best player in the league. Um, And there was obviously a ton of hype and excitement around the draft and, you know, watching us for a few games. What's it meant in Paris and in France to have this superstar over in the U.S.?
2: Where do I start, Owen? Uh, There's been tremendous, obviously, enthusiasm and momentum around him. Uh, I will start by saying that that momentum was really evident to us even before his uh, debut, even before the draft, really. So last year, we had uh, the idea of putting some of his LNB, which is the local French League games, on the NBA app. And I will say that one of his games uh, that he played with his team at the time was the best performing game on the NBA app for the full year outside of NBA games. So there was a lot of excitement and and momentum and enthusiasm around him and and his debut did not disappoint. Obviously what's happening on court, we can all, uh, we all witness, Uh, but but just to give you a taste of some other stats, I would say if we start with uh, how well his jersey is selling, it's the best selling jersey not just in France, but across Europe, uh, and I believe the third best uh, in the U.S. as well. So I think only behind LeBron and and, and Steph, um, he's the second most viewed uh, NBA player on uh, on social media again after LeBron James. I think one of his dunks against the Celtics was the single best performing uh video so far on on our social channels, and it's still January. <laughs> and it's still January, and his first year, so obviously there is tremendous excitement and enthusiasm about uh, what he does and where his ceiling uh, is at. And I think it's going to be a really high ceiling. Yeah.
0: Swing. And what does the the league do with this this huge opportunity that just you know kind of fallen into its lap? I and mean, obviously a lot of it's just going to happen on its own. But is the NBA and the NBA Europe? Um, are are you kind of doing specific things to juice the excitement here?
2: Obviously, as I've mentioned, there is a lot of work that's happening, uh, with content around him and making sure that that content, uh, is available to fans on multiple platforms, multiple devices, many times a day. Obviously there's a lot of work around, uh, merchandise, uh, obviously working very closely with the spares. And, and as I've said, that's only a few months in, there is a lot of conversations and appetite to do many things, uh, both in the U S as well as internationally in the future.
0: Yeah. And when when i think of the nba to europe connection a lot of where my mind goes is eastern europe you know we've got players like luka doncic and you know dirk nowitzki going back a little bit and other players um who have made a big splash in the nba and you know some but not as many from from you know france spain uk um is is that sort of a, a correct assessment that sort of the western europe is sort of more the developing pipeline developing market and Eastern Europe is, is more established when it comes to the connection to the NBA? Or would you disagree?
2: I think, look, I, I think it really differs on, on on the year. You're right to say that the past couple of years that has been the case. Obviously, uh, up be- before GEL, uh, the past few MVPs were from uh, Eastern Europe with uh, Nikola Jokic. Yeah, and it's a from uh, from my native country race. but but if you look uh, if if you look at maybe what the main inflection point was for Europeans to become superstars in the NBA, that would be a bit over a, de- a decade from now. We say probably around twelve to fifteen years, and then the players that were the stars of the time. It would be the Derek Nowitzkis and Paul Gasol and a, a fantastic generation of Spanish players, obviously Tony Parker from France. So I would say we're quite lucky because for the past 15 plus years, there's been a lot of protagonists of the league that come from uh, the region that we oversee, Europe uh, and the Middle East. Uh, there is a lot of countries in the region that have very rich basketball culture, heritage, and obviously a tremendous pipeline to develop and nurture talent. Uh, it does happen that Eastern European countries uh, have a spotlight now uh, but you know with victor obviously that that will be more shared but we're super excited to just have so many markets where basketball is uh, very popular for young boys and girls and there's many great players coming uh to us in the league from from yeah, and
0: so just uh just looking at your title you're you know also you also oversee the Middle East in terms of um Uh, you know, developing fans there. What's the state of of basketball and NBA fandom in the Middle East?
2: I I would say there's probably a a few different segments within what we would geographically call the Middle East as a region. So you have countries like Turkey uh, and Israel and Lebanon, that again, have decades uh, long of history and of producing players, of having uh, strong leagues and strong teams for European standards. And then you have countries in the Gulf region where again, there is tremendous appetite for the game of basketball, but it's not as developed yet. I think in some of those countries, basketball uh, is probably not in the top 10 sports that uh, young boys and girls play or watch today. Uh, And that's a great opportunity for us. That's a tremendous opportunity, has been an area of focus for our team here. As you probably know, uh, a couple of years ago, we brought the NBA for the first time in the region with our preseason games in uh, Abu Dhabi. We had the second version of that uh, this past October, uh, and there's tremendous excitement, and and the local communities have received us uh, with a lot of warmth. So, I think we're building uh, a platform there for basketball and the NBA in, in particular. But obviously, if I had to look at where they are in terms of their stage of life in terms of growing fandom, I think it's still uh, in, in its in its early stage, uh, but a lot of potential for growth for sure.
0: Very interesting stuff. George Iviziglou, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank
2: you for the time, on. It was good to see you.
0: That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports today if you have not already and tell a friend about the show. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.